Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news, politics and culture from a socialist perspective. This week uh, we're looking into what the heck is going on in Britain uh, um, and I'm joined by Paul O'Connell, an Irish socialist living in Britain, lecturer in SOAS, a socialist political educator and trade union activist. Um, so, uh, Paul, um, Boris is gone, ding dong, the witches. Is is he dead? Is he going? What what is actually happening? Uh, and how? Like after all of that, like the man seemed to be immune from like uh, all of the crap he's done, and somehow randomly he gets toppled now. What what so what what's going on? How how has Boris gone? Are we truly seeing the back of him? So Boris has gone kind of in the same way in which the um the tram link out to the airport in Dublin is finished. You know what I mean? He's he's almost gone. He's getting there. You know what I mean? He's uh. He, he he has formally announced his reg- his resignation, um, but his plan or what he wants to do is stay in office, uh, most likely until September, when the Conservatives have elected a new leader who will also then become the new Prime Minister uh, and replace him. Um, the some people fear that if he's allowed to stay in office, he'll use this opportunity uh, to either cause some sort of chaos politically or to mount a rearguard action and try and undo his uh, resignation and try and you know fight it. To, to sort of stay in power uh, my sense of it is uh, looking at it is that he, he will be gone quite soon um, the thing that brought him down in the end I don't know how much uh, people follow over there the thing that brought him down in the end was effectively um, a sort of fairly sordid sex scandal there was a, a Tory MP who had um um, made unwanted sexual advances on a number of people over the years uh, Johnson was aware of this, there was a, a list of complaints but they nonetheless appointed him to an important uh, ministerial role within the government uh, within the, the WHIP's office uh, and then when the case came out, when it finally came out, one of the more recent uh, um, uh, sexual assaults that this man or sexual sort of indiscretions that this man committed uh, Johnson tried to deny any knowledge of his previous history and then he got caught in the web of his own lies so this is what brought him down but the, like the man's been caught out on so many lies over the years no so like yeah. <laughs> that's the thing that doesn't like has his position just been is it is it just been like death by a thousand cuts sort of or why is it that the Tories now said this line this is no this far and no further like you know yeah I think that's a good question so uh, the first thing I'd say is that it's 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 slightly uh, depressing from from our perspective the perspective of socialists and the working class that what brings them down is this in the end is this sort of sordid sex scandal and not the fact that he's uh, you know con- contributed to the, the collapse of living standards for working class people here in Britain that he's supported and continues to support imperialist aggression all around the world that they completely botched COVID that led to Britain having one of the highest debt rates in the world and so forth so that's not what brought him down that was all entirely acceptable for the Tory party and Tory party members it's this thing now I think what it is the reality is the stuff people might be familiar with some of the other scandals the the party gate thing where it turned out that Johnson and uh, others were having parties in Downing Street while everybody else was uh, not able to attend the funerals or the deathbeds of family members because of the COVID restrictions all of this stuff that's been coming out over the last year and a half has been stuff that's been coming out internally so there's been an ongoing sort of behind the scenes fight within the Tories so there have been people trying to get rid of Johnson the thing about Johnson as well is that for the Tory party and for the British ruling class Johnson's ultimate value was that he was a populist antidote to Jeremy Corbyn so so while um, the British ruling class and British politics was confronted with the with the prospect of Corbyn, which is a sort of uh, important but very mild form of social democracy, uh, and they brought all the weapons to bear to make sure that didn't come uh, to be. 
both the media, the right of the Labour Party, but then Johnson as this sort of, you know, um, media character who was able to get a clear message about getting Brexit done and defeat Corbyn in the election. But more or less since he won that election, since the Tories won that election, there has been whittling away at his authority from within the Conservative Party. There have been people manoeuvring to try and replace him to move him out. Um, he was kind of bought time, uh, funnily enough, by COVID and by the war in Ukraine. Both of these things bought him time, possibly, because he had to be left in position to address them. But there was still this drip feeding of stories, whether it was about his uh, parties, whether it was about the fact that they uh, wallpapered the apartment in Downing Street with gold wallpaper, whether it was about uh, now more recently this scandal. So there have been people who've been keeping their powder dry and looking for an opportunity. And for the Tories now, I suppose, a combination of things, I imagine. One, that they feel the level of sleaze and, and, and sort of... Um, uh, sort of um, criticism thrown at the government because of Johnson and his failures became too much. Uh, but two, his opponents within the party see an opportunity to grab hold of it and to reassert themselves as the strong, stable, natural party of government without the sleaze that he brings to it. And do you think it's more that? It's more a palace coup uh, um, within the Tories or, than it is um, like that they are reacting to, like, cost of living crisis uh, uh, and all of that stuff. And, like, uh, um, do you know, as in, like, that that there's pressure from the outside and anger from the outside. And also, like, I imagine if you talk to ordinary people in Britain, they're, they're pretty disgusted at Boris's lies and at Boris's, at the at the sex uh, um, uh, assault cases and all of that stuff as well, like, you know. But do you think you're sort of arguing that it's more so... A region. It's more so that the knives were out from within the Tories rather than that the pressure came on from the outside. I think it's a bit of both, but if I was putting percentages on it, I'd say it's seventy percent internal. It's seventy percent the sort of um, the pro- the politics that was going on within the Tory party, and there definitely has been anger at the government from the public and Labour, for example, has seen its relative position to the government improve in the polls in terms of how people intend to vote at the next elections. The Tories have also lost a number of by elections, and and that by itself wouldn't necessarily bring down a prime minister because governments in power uh, tend to lose mid-term by-elections. They're seen as a sort of protest vote of sorts and it's not really a barometer of what the next general election might look like. So I think part of it is the external anger but I think it's primarily the internal Tory party politics because again all this news that came out, the only way it could have come out is if it came out from Tory sources, from Conservative Party sources. So that's how, you know, and this is going back to the um, to the party gate stuff. So that's what that's part of what that is. Now, the big problem we have now is that, like, because of the way British media works, similar to Ireland, I'm sure, this will consume the media for the next few weeks. All this sort of, you know, reality TV pantomime stuff about who will be the next leader and what's Boris's legacy and so forth. When the reality is, looking at Britain, much like Ireland, you've got soaring energy prices, soaring food prices, you know, real wages have stagnated and collapsed over the years, uh, rental prices going through the roof. So we've got a very serious social crisis, which has been building for years, you know, building for decades here but particularly since 2008 um, and the political system is incapable of addressing that and this sort of pantomime crisis reflects that much deeper crisis as well. Who's going to replace them so who if you think that there's um, people have the lives out for them within the Tories what's the what's the politics of that uh, um, is it that they want that they, that they want a softer the, the Irish protocol stuff is that part of it or is it that they want a more they want a, a, a less populist uh, um, more like 
uh, red in tooth and claw sort of neoliberal approach, or or I don't I don't know what, what what's the politics that lies behind it. Uh, um, so well, from from the in terms of who will replace them, from the people that have announced their um, their candidacy so far, um, it'll be. Um, something that's as bad as or worse than what's leaving. Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, Johnson politically is kind of um, you know, he, he's a, he's a sort of chameleon to some extent. He's obviously a conservative. He's obviously a Tory, but he can quite easily and has historically been quite easily socially liberal on things from same sex marriage to a, a range of other things. Uh, in terms of like economic ideology, I don't think he really ever had one. You know what I mean? Aside from the basic principle of uphold the right to property and and defer to corporate power but he's not a sort of a strong ideological neoliberal in the way in which some other Tories are he, he'll sort of you know cut his claws accordingly to sort of pragmatic concerns um, in terms of I think some of the people who lobbied behind the scenes to get rid of him I don't think they'll necessarily be the ones that end up replacing him I think they might sort of be disappointed on that front uh, but I think they just wanted to get rid of Johnson for a whole variety of personal and, and sort of political reasons there were people who felt slighted by him in terms of the offices they were given that he weren't given and all, all that type of stuff that went on the candidate so far um again it's it's been a a mixed bag of people but broadly speaking the the lead the leading sort of contenders would be the likes of rishi sunak um um penny morden seems to be a really strong contender uh tom tugenhard who's a former british military officer and he some people may have seen that um he was asked on just to give you an indication of where his he is as an individual. He was asked on Newsnight, "What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done?" And he said, "Oh, I've invaded a country." Uh, so the sort of the the murders of tens of thousands of Iraqis and the displacement of hundreds of thousands is just banter. You know, it's just seen as a- it's like actually. Did you see? Did you see your man in another? It reminds you. Did you see totally in, in America the John Bolton interview? Oh yeah, where. Yeah. John Bolton was saying like oh no Trump didn't try to do a coup I should know I've organised a couple of coups in my life you know <laughs> yeah yeah well, that's I mean a rare a rare outbreak of honesty said the quiet part out loud <laughs> yeah exactly uh, but yeah so in terms of the substantive politics in terms of the individuals I think the bookies have Penny Mordant as the um, as the favourite and she'd be like a classic conservative in the sort of uh, Thatcherite mould you know e- economically what we call neoliberal socially conservative uh, interestingly and depressingly um, a lot of the Conservative candidates are just parroting bog standard lines about cutting taxes but also a large number of them are engaging in sort of what we call culture war type politics so they're coming out and raising the questions of um, trans rights and attacking trans activists they're criticising universities as being sort of woke factories and you know all this other sort of nonsense so it's going to be that combination of, of sort of social conservatism, economic nihilism at least rhetorically, but there's a really important thing about Britain that I think we might, might be worth flagging, is that even before um, Johnson won the election in 2019, for a whole variety of deep structural reasons, especially post-Brexit, British capitalism and the British state is going to have to get engage in a serious degree of investment, a serious degree of state-sponsored investment and state-guided investment, sort of right-wing Keynesianism. Just because British infrastructure and a whole range of other things are, are, have been in decline for decades, and that needs to be addressed in order to maintain profitability in Britain and for British capital, especially, as I say, post-Brexit and in the, in the emerging sort of global economic system. So whoever gets elected and whatever rhetoric they deploy we'll see broadly speaking the same sort of politics which will be increasingly authoritarian on questions of uh, the right to protest trade union rights migrants rights uh, increasingly 
ramping up where appropriate the sort of culture wars rhetoric uh, economically acting in ways complex ways that ultimately benefit the already wealthy and that'll be a combination of cutting taxes in some cases but also the state intervening and spending billions whether to support particular industries or develop national champions so it'll be a complex mix but it won't be massively different from what johnson has has done we should move on soon but one one last question on that is does the uh do you think this will change in any way the tories approach in terms of the northern irish protocol and all of that stuff is does that feature at all to, in British politics, or is that just like a side story that nobody cares about? Um, but like, because over the last while, Johnson has been uh, um, like was saying that they were going to rip up the protocol, basically. Uh, um, uh, uh, um, and is that breaking a, a breaking another treaty and another promise and all of that sort of stuff? And people have been uh, uh, up in arms a bit about that. But is that likely to change? Is the approach from the Tories likely to change on that? Or do you still think that the new, as much as you can guess, but that the new leader of the Tories will still have that same uh, alliance with the DUP type approach? I think so. Uh, I think, it's, it's again, it's hard to gain saying it'll depend to some extent in a limited way it'll depend on the individual but to give you an example uh, Suella Braverman is one of the candidates uh, and she was the Attorney General so the sort of Chief Legal Officer in the government uh, and she's very much articulated a similar view of uh, Britain's relationship to international law as Johnson has had so she's also talking about um, scrapping the Human Rights Act um, breaking with any you know diktats from foreign courts and so forth and also the idea of Again, it, it turns on how the government as a whole, and so it's not just Johnson, are viewing Britain's relationship to international law. So they're basically saying that, well, international law only binds us to the extent that we accept it. Uh, and if we decide to legislate in Parliament to do something different, then we can do that because that's how parliamentary sovereignty works. Uh, now that, of course, is true as a matter of domestic law, but as a matter of international law, they, they're happy to breach what would be binding international requirements so i don't see a massive change they're also again a number of the people who've thrown that hat in the ring are people who have supported the um the legacy uh, bill on the trouble so basically retrospectively giving um uh, immunity to british uh, armed forces who committed um, crimes in in the north of ireland uh, they've also i mean this is these are the same people who passed legislation a year and a half ago to um reduce the legal culpability of british service people acting overseas who might commit war crimes in the future so it's not just a retrospective thing <laughs> they've also legislated to limit the legal There's plans for the future as well <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the plans for, and and the plans for the future are already in place. You know, they've also passed the spy cops bill, which allows undercover police officers to commit criminal offences. You know, including murder, rape, whatever it is. And they're cracking down on the right on picket line rights and stuff. I think I saw. Yeah, yeah. So, so Britain already has immensely restrictive trade union laws. So the the Trade Union Act, uh, two thousand and fifteen, uh, which imposes the um the limits on on the vote that has to be attained in order to take strike action, the fifty percent uh, limit, which makes it difficult for unions to can make it difficult for unions to call strike action. Uh, but now this government, and it's it's important to say that this isn't new. They flagged this in the two thousand and nineteen manifesto that they wanted to address this already. That strike shouldn't be allowed to disrupt essential infrastructure and so 
forth. So they've been planning for this and, and anticipating this. But yeah, they're they're talking about introducing new laws, for example, particularly for rail workers, that if they do go on strike, they should still be obliged to maintain some form of minimal service. Uh, they've brought in a new law as well to allow for uh, employers to bring in um, scab labour uh, in order to cover work when strikes are, are taking place. They've also changed the law recently to increase the maximum amount that, of damages that can be awarded against trade unions if they engage in illegal uh, industrial action and so forth. So yeah, they are very much attacking the right to strike on a number of different fronts. Um, that's all the bleak stuff. <laughs> yeah. Boris is gone, but don't get your hopes up. Um, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. <laughs> there, there, there is, uh, there is some stuff to get your hopes up about, though. No, is there? There seems to be. Yeah. You, uh, um, the well, the recent RMT strike seemed to be like quite a, a powerful. Uh, um, Mick Lynch became a national celebrity in Ireland. Sure. I think boosted when he said that James Connolly was his political icon. I think, um, <laughs> um, but also just his take on taking on the uh, all the right wing British uh, uh, journalists and all. But so, there, yeah. there, but it doesn't seem to be standalone. There seems to be a bit more of a bit of industrial unrest more generally, or a bit of workers sort of demand and pay increases to, to cope with the cost yeah. of living crisis. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the RMT strike is obviously the the most recent one in a way, and and particularly because of Mick Lynch, because he he did such a good job uh, in the media at both defending his members uh, and defending the strike action, but more generally generalizing the issue. Um, so there was an interesting graph that was produced, which showed support for the strike at the start of the week and at the end of the week, and it increased throughout the course of the strike, in large part, some people would say because of Mix uh, and, and also Eddie Dempsey and others, because of how they performed in the media. Um, so that is really important. And and, and the RMT are, are, always have been a good, strong uh, militant trade union, and they've always had a clear enough idea about uh, what their responsibility is to their members and more broadly. Uh, but it's not just the RMT, because even before the recent RMT strike, um, Unite, um, was it, was it, I've lost track of dates because everything's a blur with COVID and everything else but I think it was late last year when the Unite uh, General Secretary election took place and Sharon Graham uh, was elected and she's been fantastic um, she's been she, she she's not a, a rank and file candidate she, she obviously was already working for the union but she's very much uh, a candidate that connected with the membership uh, who has been involved in industrial disputes for years and who has a clear industrial strategy and so Unite in every from uh, refuse workers uh, to um, uh, cabin cabin crew and and sort of ground staff in in Heathrow Airport and Cadbury's workers, they've won major struggles already but just a general orientation shift has been important so Sharon Graham a number of times have articulated that that working class people won't pay for this crisis that the politicians and, and politics more broadly is failing the working class and the unions will step into it uh, likewise the communication workers union which is a, a decent union as well uh, they've uh, balloted a number of their staff I think it's about 120,000 workers altogether across various sectors including Royal Mail um, BT uh, and some other sectors as well they're likely to come out on strike in the coming months uh, the biggest teachers union the neu is balloting members uh, soon for strike action later this year my union ucu which is the university uh, university and uh, further education lecturers uh, union um criminal barristers have been on strike in the last two weeks because of cuts to the, to the uh, criminal legal aid and so forth uh, and i think there's you know there's a number of other things so there's definitely a growing 
industrial and trade union militancy in Britain. The RMT is is at the cutting edge of it. Um, so there's lots of grounds for for hope in terms of that, and it's it's great to see that. Um, I think we all have to be clear, and I think the RMT are clear on this, and the people in the RMT are clear on this, that precisely because they are at the cutting edge, the government is going to go for them. Uh, and again, this isn't new. It's important to flag that in the 2019 general election, the Conservative Party did in their manifesto then already identify rail unions and the RMT in particular as a problem. That the, the fact that they could cripple, you know, the government or, or sorry, cripple the, the, the country and, and, and limit um, stuff, that this is an issue that had to be addressed. When they won the election, it was either late 2019 or early 2020, the government ministers came out straight away and identified the RMT as an issue that had to be dealt with so this hasn't come out of nowhere again the covid interruption kind of possibly postponed some of these things that were going to come to a head anyway um but now with the current um dispute the uh, government is clearly uh advising the employers uh, not to give the rmt what they're demanding what they're asking for the government has also introduced these various measures as i mentioned already to undermine the right to strike the government is you know um, trying to fight and trying to launch a sort of uh, media campaign against the RMT and against striking workers so it's going to be a dirty and likely a prolonged fight uh, but with the RMT in particular they're a union that's ready for this uh, and, and sort of ready to do this the big question now is to what extent the rest of the trade union movement can act actively mobilise to support them but it, it does seem like um, yeah, like the obviously the Tories being in their own crisis may be somewhat of a a help, but it did seem like the the Tories were gearing up for a full, uh, like minor strike strike level like confrontation with the RMT. Try to, if you can crush the RMT, uh, and then the whole, uh, uh, you can crush the whole union movement type of thing. Like I, I saw after the last strike, they were talking about, um, I think changing the, yeah, that stuff changing the laws to bring in scabs, uh, um, but like. They're also they're refusing to give any guarantees in terms of jobs, so you could be talking about massive layoffs uh, um, uh, um, of 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 workers. And that was I agree with you. Like the thing that Mick Lynch, one of the things that he did best in the interviews was when he was talking about um, uh, uh, look, this is what we need to see more of. Actually, workers need to be using their power to fight back. There's a cost of living crisis, etc., uh, etc. Et and the more organised workers are across the country, the more we can. Uh, get a fair share of the the wealth that we produce, you know. When he ge- like generalizing it that way, you know. But it, it that precisely from the government's point of view, though, presumably that's what terrifies them. If they concede, if they're seen to concede to the RMT, um, then it'll be everybody else next, you know. So where where, where is this going to go? Uh, they've announced another strike day now, um, for a two weeks time, I think. Uh, um, but like, how does this? Where does this go? How does this get? How do? How, how does this? How do they get forced to back down? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. Some a positive thing that's happened is that the two other main rail unions, uh, ASLEF and the TSSA, have also balloted their members and have also successfully uh, got approval from their members for strike actions. You've now, for the first time, I think in thirty or forty years, you have the three main uh, transport and rail unions. Uh, ballot and they're ready to go on strike at the same time um i don't know what what's going on in terms of discussions for coordinated action i'm not fully sure how that's going to shape up but that's going to be what's necessary and now the, the problem with that is that it confronts the legal restrictions on protest here so anything that is considered to be sort of secondary action anything that goes beyond the official dispute is unlawful and so um precisely how this is coordinated or if it is coordinated would be an important question of strategy um 
so so with the RMT, right? I think the RMT are a very strong union, and again, they haven't people like Mick Lynch and that haven't just sort of appeared out of thin air. Like so, they, with the RMT in particular, for years has had um, strong links and associations with the Communist Party of Britain, who uh, have done really valuable work in there in terms of uh, orientating the politics of the RMT and RMT membership, and a, a clear understanding that as a trade union, they're not just there to sort of do the service model of trade unionism and to get the occasional or the annual sort of pay increase for the members, but that actually the trade union is part of the class struggle and part of that much bigger fight uh, and someone like Mick and others they've been schooled in that for years you know they've come to come through that in various industrial disputes and so forth so as a trade union leadership uh, they will be resolute and committed and determined um in terms of their actual membership um i think at the minute they're shown uh, strong commitment and resolve and and i was out on the picket lines in manchester uh, with some of the um striking workers they're fully clued in they know what they're doing they know why they're doing it they understand the sort of historical significance of it as well you know chatting to them they'll, they'll say to you that you know if if we don't win then everybody else is going to get it. So they actually understand that themselves. They understand that position. Um, but the big question now is, so the next the next strike action is one day, um, which which could be significant, but I know some RMT members are a bit frustrated at that. They, w- they would like to see more concerted action a number of days. And again, I'm sure there are very good reasons as to why they've just chosen one 24-hour uh, period for, for the next round of strike action. Uh, and I'm sure we'll see more strike action af- after it. But the question is, is, if it drags out and as it prolongs and as the um, loss of pay for members starts to bite and as the uh, if it could definitely happen if sort of public goodwill starts to wane uh, and if scabs are brought in. So if the, if the strike in its fundamental sense is undermined, you know what I mean? So if they're not able to actually stop the services running, uh, then how can it be sustained? I don't know is the short answer to that. I think one thing's for certain is that the, the, the broader trade union movement uh, has to ensure that we sort of swell the, the, the fighting fund of the RMT that we that we support them in that way as a minimum and also you know in all the other ways that we can trade unions through through passing resolutions through getting out on the picket line and supporting them uh, there's a bigger fight to be had um in the broader trade union movement here against the government's attacks on the right to pro- on the right to strike and in all of its different forms that's not yet being coordinated that's not yet being articulated in a coherent way and that's partly because the TUC uh, is is far more timid and far more a sort of uh, service or business model of trade unionism than what the uh, RMT and others are offering so how it will how it will shape up i'm not too sure um i think there's definitely the potential for an important victory that could set the tone for the next couple of years of because you, much like in ireland we're entering into a sustained period here of economic crisis economic depression uh, people are going to see living standards being undermined further unless we can build the political and social movement start turning that around and in britain the rmt strike could be a pivotal moment but precisely because it could be we're going to see it fought toot and claw by the government whether boris johnson is there or not you know whoever comes in they will fight it as resolutely and they'll use everything at their disposal we've seen some of it already so for example the right-wing newspapers here ran stories about how the rmt were putin's friends and you know, friends with Ukrainian warlords or, you know, all this various type of stuff that was going on, how it, you know, they, they're undermining. It's just um, ironic given that yeah. uh, the British state rolled out the red carpet for Putin after the war in Chechnya and literally gave him a, a, a Queen's a, a state visit uh, um, and a reception with the Queen and also, uh, whilst the socialist left uh, um, were the ones uh, speaking out and condemning the uh, 
the uh, Putin's like brutal brutalization of the people in Chechnya. Exactly, and not to mention the, the the millions that the conservatives have taken from Russian oligarchs you know, over the years and everything. So yeah, it's complete. You know, it's complete cynicism. It's complete nonsense. It's like when you know I um I saw something today. I think it was involved in PBP where where um Leo Varadkar or maybe um Michal Martin came out and said, oh well, if you know if these people got elected, there'd be no landlords left. <laughs> that sounds like a good thing. But like I said, yeah, 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 that was great. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> it's this sort of exactly, yeah. But it sounds like, it, but it's the same sort of empty, nonsensical rhetoric, and uh, you know, and, and they'll 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 roll it and they continue to do it, and it'll get worse. It's like it's like conce- conceptually that it's li- it's like Fine Gael are so embedded in like capitalist yeah. theory, they think if there's no landlords, there's no houses. There, do you know what I mean? <laughs> they, it's like. No, exactly. They vanish. The houses vanish. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like no, no. We could actually, we could actually have public housing and yeah. provide it at affordable rents to people. What do you, do you know? Um. Anyway, anyway. Yeah. What a horrible thought. <laughs> it wasn't the landlords that built the house. You know, <laughs> um, it's those construction workers you don't want to pay. But anyway, um, anyway, okay. So, uh, um, uh. uh uh, we should move on the other the other thing. Like so, what's the, so that's the industrial bit of good news. Um, politically though, for the left, um, it's kind of like Tories are in crisis. The uh, 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 the working class people are engaging in struggle. Um, should even the Tory ministers withdrew their labour in order to get rid of uh, Johnson? You know, they <laughs> they went on strike to get their results. But yeah, they, they, but but the on the other hand. The other, like the labor, is in disarray as well. You have the, uh, um, like the the left seems to be the political left or whatever seems to be, um, not at the races or just the tide is out. Uh, people are demoralized politically. There's there's sort of like, the the Corbyn project, bashed up against the wall and then, uh, uh but what what's the story there? What's happening on 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 that side? So yeah, that's one of the uh, <laughs> we bookended the good news with two pieces of not so good news. So so I know, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't structure this well. Yeah, but that's that's it. But no, but so 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 I think the the thing the thing with that is is so politically right. So 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 in Britain, the Labour Party now, uh, particularly since Starmer came in, has has very much um, fought a sort of or led a, a sort of restoration against the sort of blip that was the Corbyn project. Now, for, again, I don't know how familiar people are, but just just to be absolutely clear that with Corbyn and with what he offered in terms of a progressive and hopeful social democratic um sort of um approach to the crisis we've been living through for the last twenty plus years, that that was a blip in terms of the history of the Labour Party. Uh, so that the Labour Party, even though the Labour Party was instrumental in setting up the welfare state and so forth, uh, but the Labour Party for the most part has has always been a safe pair of hands for British capitalism and British imperialism. So even the Labour uh, governments that set up the welfare state were still engaged in colonial brutality in Kenya and other places around the world and were still sort of upholding an international order of inequality and so forth. Um, so, so the Labour Party has always been very much a party of the British state, a party of the British ruling class, albeit the sort of B team, uh, even though they did historically perform some important functions in the past when trade union membership was substantially bigger than it was when the working class was a more serious political organized political force but after the corbyn uh, blip part of the project within the british ruling class and within the labor party has been absolutely salting the earth after that so that basically right this was a 
this was a scare for us. Uh, this is never going to happen again. We're never going to have the possibility where somebody who would uh, recognize and support the rights of the Palestinian people, somebody who would try to redistribute, even in a modest way, uh, resources and wealth within Britain, uh, somebody who would try and address these issues. We're never going to let that to happen again. You get Keir Starmer, you get the, the sort of purging of left-wing activists, you get the abandonment of all the sort of Corbyn uh, commitments, to the point where uh, just last night or the night before, two nights ago, there was a, a piece of legislation in the House of Lords. Uh, the legislation's already been passed by the Commons, so chances are the legislation's going to come into effect any, in any event. Um, but in the House of Lords, a Lib Dem, and bear in mind the Lib Dems are abysmal, a Lib Dem peer moved an amendment uh, to add to the legislation a guarantee of free school meals for children whose parents are on universal credit or benefits uh, over here. Uh, and the Labour Party whipped their members in the House of Lords to abstain on this vote. So, so, so they didn't. They didn't support this. When you're being outlefted by the Lib Dems, like Labour was meant to be a left wing split. It, the Lib Dems, the Labour was a left wing split from the Lib Dems. Uh, um, you know, <laughs> originally or in some way historically, but like, yeah. it's abysmal. Like so, so, so the Labour Party is is um in in terms of substantive policy. So I mentioned earlier, like the overseas operations bill that gives greater immunity to uh, British armed forces who might commit war crimes abroad. Also the spy cops bill here. The the Labour Party has either abstained or supported uh, or tepidly opposed most of these policies in terms of economics they're situating themselves to be the sort of fiscally responsible party uh, so they're basically embracing it in advance austerity. Uh, so So in terms of substantive policy they're, they're almost indistinguishable from the Conservatives. So if if there is a general election uh, soon, which I don't think there will be, but if there is, it could happen, uh, but I think unlikely. Um, but if there were a general election, there's a possibility Labour could win it. But if they did, the substantive politics you would get after that wouldn't be markedly different from what the Conservatives have introduced. Now, it might be different on some issues, like let's say, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, or the relationship with the British state to international law. It might be different on some of those issues in the same way in which Biden government like, was different from a Trump government on those sort of issues. But on economic policy, uh, on social policy, on a whole range of other things, it would be broadly the same. So the problem we have now is that we have this minor political crisis because i don't think the johnson thing is as big a crisis for the conservatives as, as as we'd like it to be but it is definitely an opening and a possibility we have this growing working class trade union and industrial militancy which is really positive but we don't have a political instrument or a political vehicle that expresses this so when the rmt were out on strike for example uh keir starmer sent a letter to all labor and peace telling them they shouldn't go and join them on the picket line because he was concerned that the the strike might be unpopular uh with the focus groups that he <laughs> that he seems to have been made by in a lab somewhere um uh, li- li- likewise with all the other strike action coming up labor is situating itself as the sort of again to use the old cliche as, as the toured way so labor is on the side both of the employers and of the workers and just wants everybody to get along type of thing so they don't they don't offer uh, a voice for workers engaged in struggle unfortunately however most of the trade unions and the rmt are an exception here the rmt are not affiliated to the labor party which is again part of explains part of why they, they are as good as they are uh, on their industrial front but most of the other trade unions especially the major trade unions unite and unison and cw and so forth are still affiliated to the labor party and the leaderships of most of those unions still view politics in that traditional laborist way so they basically see themselves as 
for the most part service unions and that is shifting with unite to some extent and so forth but they see themselves as service unions doing the industrial work for their members and they've subcontracted out the politics of the labor party they've done that for 100 years uh, broadly speaking the problem is uh, over time the labor party increasingly has drifted away from any substantive connection to the trade unions any substantive connection to any notions of socialism and so forth blair was the the sort of high point of that but everything that's followed corbyn being the blip in the middle but the Labour Party has drifted away from it and so we have a real opportunity but we don't really have an existing uh, political alternative um, so that is a, a major problem now there are some organizations the the obvious ones are um, the People's Assembly uh, and the Trade Union and Socialist Coalition or TUSC uh, are the two sort of main organizations that you could look at as potential vehicles for some form of political alternative um, but but they're quite uh, fragmented and uncertain in terms of what they're doing and in the absence of major trade unions rowing in and lending support to them materially and politically, um, it's hard to see them forming a serious political alternative in terms of in electoral terms. Uh, it's hard to see them doing that. But uh, there's a real chance, especially with the People's Assembly, but also with Tusk, that they can start to see coalescing around those organisations a serious um broad left socialist project outside of the Labour Party but again it's embryonic it's fragmented it's not solid yet but there's a potential there for it yeah and like obviously the biggest in a sense uh, biggest thing that uh, Keir Starmer has done uh, since coming in obviously shifted to the right and all that but also it seems that as you said salt in the earth driving anybody that was kind of left wing out of the party just trying to in pushing them to leave but also changing all the the rules to try to make sure that corbyn can never happen again um so that it does seem like like that those people that are advocating a strategy of let's try for corbyn 2.0 uh, um i don't know it's difficult to see how that would come about uh, um but it, it also does i don't know i don't know the, the a political strategy outside of the labor party is also like is it an electoral strategy outside of labor also seems kind of um tough to to, to to see like i i know tusk like i used to be a member of the socialist party here in ireland and would have heard all about tusk but it does seem to like uh be a i don't know a masochistic exercise and how how low votes can you stand yourself to get very low votes you know um and it, do, it doesn't seem to have picked up pace i see rmt have have they either disaffiliated or they've deprioritized uh, Tusk as well? I think they might have deprioritized. I mean, it was very much Bob Crow who led the RMT into Tusk, and, and Bob Crow was a driving force at that point in time. Um, but it's less of a priority, I think, for the RMT these days, um, even though I think they're still formally affiliated. What would you think, though, then? Is it like for um, for social activists, is it just back to basics and like... Uh, um, uh, do do your trade union work, do your campaign and work, do do build like actual networks of resistance and uh, 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 yes, we're in favour of a left party, but it's probably not on the cards in the the short term. Or well, or, like that that's obviously not a very satisfying answer either, though. No. So I think I think an important point here is is sort of. Um, is thinking through the history of it as well. There's also a theoretical part of it, but thinking through the history of it. So the thing with what the Labour left is waiting for, they're not just waiting for Corbyn 2.0, they're waiting for Ben 4.0. You know what I mean? So you, so you had, if, if, if you know the history of the British left, they have had periods, not as leader of the party, but as uh, poles of a... Um, 
serious uh, social democratic left within the party. They've had periods. They've had Tony Benn. They've had Foot. They've had now Corbyn, and they'll wait around for something. They'll they'll invariably compromise and and, and go for someone like Andy Bornham or or something like that. But but the Labour left, unfortunately, uh, is 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 trapped in uh, a broader political tradition which understands politics first and foremost as elections uh, and because of that they'll always come back to this self-fulfilling rationalization which is that well the only thing we have to do is get the tories out that's the main thing right and they'll keep saying that in spite of all the history of new labor and uh, and sort of other labor governments in the past labor governments that, that broke strikes tony ben for example when he was a minister he was hours away from ordering in the army to break a strike <laughs> he recorded this in his own diaries you know what I mean? so even the left of the labor party i think to be fair to him he did say that he did say that he was being lied to by his uh, advisors. Uh, uh, the, the, the head of his department, his advisors lied and said, "If you don't send somebody in, there'll be a nuclear meltdown or something." Which, which for the for the record, is a useful way to see just how far the even if you even if you manage to get a Corbyn government, that the the, the heads of the departments are going to be trying to scupper it from the they will lie, cheat, and do everything they can. Um, but uh, anyway, a very British coup is a very good uh, show for people to watch or read the book. <laughs> along those but that's things. a good point there about the the, the, the ministers and the, are the sort of permanent state, the civil servants and the and elected politicians. And this goes back to another bigger problem with the Labour Party and the and the Corbyn Party is that the default understanding of the state and of state power is that it's neutral. So the idea is mm-hmm. that you get elected. Uh, and then you can make good things happen. Get the Tories out, get elected, and make good things happen. Well, first and foremost, the current Labour Party leadership aren't promising any good things. <laughs> if they get elected, there's nothing there. But even if they were, as you say, there are these uh, existing institutional networks within the state that would dampen that. So, the, you know, even even under the Corbyn uh, period, uh, John MacDonald, as his shadow chancellor, had already compromised their position on a whole range of things when it looked like there was the possibility of them winning an election. And that's not because um, they're sellouts or they're traitors like that. It's because of the realities of state power. They were they would have been getting advice from sitting civil servants, but also from um, you know big capitalists in Britain. They would have said, "Well, thus far and no further." You know what I mean? You can you can okay, you can have your little yeah, bit yeah. of redistribution, but don't address these fundamentals. So this is a bigger problem with the laborist tradition: the understanding of the state as this neutral thing, the understanding of uh, socialism to the extent that they talk about socialism as the sort of um, effectively top-down delivery of decent public services. You know what I mean? That's 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 what it boils down to. You know what I mean? Things thing should be a little bit nicer for people. And the excessive focus on elections. Now, if you accept all of those things, if you buy into all those premises, then absolutely Labour is the only uh, vehicle... Uh, the only way of advancing it you know we, we, you you hold your nose you vote labor you stay in there you try and get a little bit of a rule change you try and get one half decent left-wing mp elected you try and advance some minimal things i i don't share that view of politics which is mm-hmm. which is why i don't um which is why i think the labor party and the laborist tradition is a is a fundamental obstacle to socialist politics in britain so even now right i'm not in tusk and i'm not in the people's assembly uh, even though i support both of them uh, in, in sort of principle for what they do um if on the other hand you understand socialist politics at its most basic uh, as being about working class self-emancipation uh, and about working to break with the capitalist system the capitalist state and all and all the various forms well then there's a whole bunch of things you can do politically so um we could do it through tusk we could do it through the people's assembly doing projects of 
uh, working in the trade unions, which is already happening, but joining that up, uh, linking together existing community campaigns, like non-payment campaigns, for example, around energy bills, uh, food banks and mutual aid stuff, linking all that together uh, and making it part of a coherent project. Uh, Marta Harnicker, who was a, a Chilean um, Marxist and socialist, she did a lot of work in Venezuela and Bolivia, but she used this term, a political instrument, which we might just call a political party, but it's, it's a bit broader than that. But the idea is that you build a uh, node that brings together these various different channels of opposition but with a clear politics a politics that is about rupture probably about breaking with the status quo yeah good Good, good name checking our podcast. Fair play, Chipotle. There you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you'll never do that in any meaningful way through the Labour Party. With the Labour Party, you just reinforce the status quo, right? And so Tusk, absolutely, um, Tusk has its problems, but Tusk has a plan for the next election to stand a large number of candidates. So I think any socialist in Britain, if you're not, even if you're not in Tusk, that you should support Tusk candidates. If there's a Tusk candidate in your area, you should support them. If there's a Communist Party candidate in your area, you should support them. I I think in Britain, especially because of the particular electoral system here, Ireland's obviously different with um, proportional representation in Britain, but the force past the post system, any electoral vehicle here isn't about winning the election. It's not about, I don't mean it's about, it's about, it can be, it can be about winning discrete local victories, but it's not about becoming the government. You're not going to do that. That's not going to happen through the electoral system here. You could win a local council, you could do various other things. So if you engage in electoral politics here, it's less about offering people uh, policies and saying, we'll give everybody free bought broadband or we'll do this we'll do that but instead it's about offering people a vision and a political perspective which brings together all of these other things the trade union work the community work the broader political education and builds for a much more fundamental transformation now this is absolutely frustrating and again I'd, i wish there was a a sort of uh, easier answer or a shorter answer or a more direct way to say we're going to storm buckingham palace or we're going to storm westminster and we're going to seize power tomorrow that's not on the agenda but we have to be laying the foundations now because, again, you look around at the minute with the sort of weather conditions around Europe and around the rest of the world, the scale of uh, climate breakdown, the scale of social sort of unraveling and, and sort of uh, discontinuity that's taking place, the scale of the crisis we confront now isn't one that can be met with half measures and the sort of um, reinvention of tepid social democratic reformism. So the Corbyn project and the Corbyn opportunity. I wasn't again not a Labour Party member, but I supported Corbyn and supported that and I had conversations with many people at the time saying to them, this is back in two thousand and sixteen, seventeen saying that, look, even if Corbyn gets elected and manages to deliver everything he wants to deliver, which he won't do, but even if he did that, that would be a fraction of what socialists want and a fraction of what socialists are about politically. So absolutely, if you want to support Corbyn, if you want to go in and join Labour, do it, but do it without illusions. The problem is the gravitational pull of Labourism is just so extensive. So once somebody enters into that fray into the labor party they're not just in there okay i'm i'm gonna be i'm gonna stay a revolutionary socialist but i'm gonna do a little bit of this labor stuff they get sucked into the fight over the next internal election the next local election the next general election the next sort of debate the next uh, rule change and the lawyers get consumed by that sort of politics and what was supposed to be the means to an end becomes an end in itself so so long as that form of politics is the main avenue for a lot of people it's an absolute dead end so for me something i've done for years since i've been here in different ways uh is try and create uh sites of independent 
working class organization and that can be for example in manchester we have a political education uh, group called the beehive actually this evening we have a meeting where we've got a reading group one of them in we're reading a book called class struggle unionism which is a really good book about uh, rank and file trade unionism and how we think that through um so uh, that can also be as i say food banks it can be setting up uh, anti-raids networks to oppose uh, the sort of racist immigration system here it can be any number of things but building those independent things is crucial but they're not stopping at that. We then have to then try and articulate or bring together this political instrument that brings together the various strands of serious anti-systemic politics in its various forms. And again, the Labour Party will never be that vehicle. Even under Corbyn, it wasn't that vehicle. You know, Corbyn uh, and the Corbyn project, they had good policies on a whole range of issues, but they were still tepid on the question of nuclear weapons. They were still uh, tepid on the question of Britain's membership of NATO. Um, you know, as much as Corbyn as an individual supported Palestine and the membership at conference voted in favour of motions for Palestine, the party itself frustrated that, you know, and, and sort of undermined that. Um, so the Labour Party will never be the vehicle for advancing socialism in any way, shape or form. And again, this isn't new and this isn't just me. You go back to like Ralph Miliband, you go back to, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of the leading best Marxists and socialists in Britain for a generation or more have made this argument. Uh, one of the big problems with Labourism and the Labour's tradition is that it's got anti-intellectualism baked into it. Uh, so people don't think this true but quite often you'll talk to people they don't know the history of their own party they don't know that this stuff is going to happen already you know 40 years ago 20 years ago whatever it is it's a sort of superficial moralism there's elements of a sort of nostalgic cosplaying working class stuff going on in there as well and also just opportunism and reformism which you know is part and parcel of it so yeah on the political side of it we don't have a pre-existing uh absolutely nailed on alternative at the minute we have the potential for them as i said tusk and people's assembly both of them with their limitations and problems but they are sites where people are talking about this and organizing and thinking it through and i'd support all of them personally and i think we all should support them and 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 and, and sort of look to bring them together in the conversation and try and build something um but i think the scale of the social crisis we're facing is going to see things accelerate in different ways both good and bad the right over here is going to gain ground as well you know they are they already have over the last number of years uh, with brexit and with the likes of tommy robinson who are really fringe elements uh but because the revolutionary left and the socialist left in britain is so disorganized and fragmented when there's so much anger on the ground people are going to look for an outlet and unless we get our act together in giving them that opportunity and that outlet and that space the right will benefit from that okay well on that positive negative optimistic pessimistic i don't know on that it, it it, it, it is a note. That's the only thing that I can say. Um, yeah. On that note, I think we'll we'll wrap it up for now. Uh, um, uh, uh, and just to say thanks to our listeners, uh, uh, especially those who spread the word about the podcast. If you like this episode, if you like hearing about this, I'm sure, uh, Paul, is there places that they can follow you on Twitter anyway? Is there anywhere else that they can keep an in, in, in eye on you? Oh yeah, no, I'm on I'm on Twitter. Um but I you know, I I'm trying to be on it less if I can, but <laughs> I'm on Twitter, so yeah. Well we'll we'll put a link to your, your Twitter. Uh, and I'd also encourage people to share this episode into WhatsApp group or uh uh, uh, shared on social media um, you can follow ourselves Rupture Radio on Twitter Facebook and Insta um, or you can if anybody out there wants to volunteer to help us get on TikTok um, let us know <laughs> um, uh, um, 
And uh, I would just, the final thing that I say to people is I would ask people that are listening, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and I, I know I know at least 22% of you are, I can see you, um, to then please do uh, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts as well, because it does help um, us reach more people. Uh, but okay, we leave it there, and uh, thanks again for, for joining us, Paul, and hopefully have you on again thanks for being, soon, uh, when we have more good, bad, indifferent news to, to discuss. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Ken. Cheers, fair play.